0: Hello and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker
1: meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is June 2nd, 1988. My home group is the McKean Street Miracle Group of Alpha Hawks Anonymous. We meet at St. Agnes Hospital, Broad McKean Street, South Philadelphia, seven nights a week. If you're ever in the neighborhood, please stop by. We'd love to have you. I'd like to thank the group for allowing me uh, the privilege, and it is a privilege to participate in the AA meeting. I don't know why all you guys got these heavy coats on. This is like springtime back home. (laughs) I left Philadelphia. It was 23 degrees this morning. So this is beautiful. Chapter 5 is real clear. I will tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born and raised in a very blue collar ethnic neighborhood. I got seven brothers and sisters. Uh, my mother was pregnant for almost ten years. Seriously. I got a sister who's 11 months older than me, and I am 11 months older than my next sister. So there's like, I guess that makes us Irish octuplets. Yeah we had no booze at all in the house my mother could not drink besides being pregnant all those years she also suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse prescription medication and my father did not drink and he was also smart enough not not to have any booze at all in the house but my grandparents lived around the corner from us and that's where all the family functions were held you know graduations the christenings, and things like that and that's where i had my very first drink i didn't get drunk the first time i drank but uh, i was just a kid i remember what it was it was a valentine beer and their basement was finished. You know, they had a bar in the basement. And I was running around polishing off the half-empties. Or the half-fulls, I guess it all depends on your perception. I was polishing off the half-empties. And it was my uncle's pointing at me and said, Hey, look at him, look at Bobby. And that's what I always craved. I never felt a part of. And that's pretty tough to do when you've got ten people living in a small three-bedroom no home. But I never felt a part of. And that would be the, my story even into early recovery. I love my grandparents. You know... Uh, all the parties that were there, were just you know, they were just great people. I just loved them. But my grandparents were immigrants, so they kind of spoke kind of funny. And my friends used to make fun of them. But I think if you came to the neighborhood, you know, I don't think they were any better than my grandparents. But, you know, they made fun of them, but I just loved them. It was a great time there. My drinking really took off in high school. Most of the kids in the neighborhood went to the local diocese in high school. But my parents had sent me to a private Jesuit high school. And right away, I felt kind of different. Because most of the kids who went to this school were from affluent families from the suburbs. Just me and a couple of the dirt balls in the neighborhood, we went to this school. And right away, I felt kind of different, you know? These kids, a lot of them in the schools in the inner city, and most of these kids, it was the first time in the inner city, so their parents would be dropping them off in their luxury automobiles, and me and the guys in the neighborhood who used to walk to this school, so we had some sort of reputation. We would be inside robbing their lockers. And I knew that was wrong. I knew that by the values instilled in me, by the nuns as a kid and by my parents. But the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else. And I had a lot of nicknames, and one of those nicknames was Crazy Coil. And I would do things in my gut that I knew was wrong. But, you know, I was like your entertainment committee, where I needed to impress my other friends from the neighborhood as a show-off, and I would do things I was uncomfortable doing. So I remember my freshman year at the prep. It's September, it's football season, there was an away game, we rented a bus, there was drinking, there was fighting, there was police activity. It was really a lot of fun. (laughs) And I remember the first day back to school, we had to go see the disciplinarian. And he had about 10 of us lined up outside his office. And they were all upperclassmen, except me and another kid from the neighborhood. We were the only two freshmen there. And he came right up to us. He said, what's with you guys? You guys here like a couple weeks and you're getting this jackpot already? And I just shrugged my shoulders. I said, you know, Father, just one of them things. And what it was, that would be the story of my life. It didn't take me long to size up situations. I didn't play football, so I didn't hang out with those kids. Even though I did well academically, I didn't hang out with the AP kids. I was there about a week and a half. I found who the nitwits were, and that's what I hung out with. And that would be the story of my life. I would size up situations quickly, regardless of whatever situation I'd be put into. I knew who was about to drink and any other stuff, and that's who I hung out with. I really didn't distinguish myself at the prep, but I didn't do barely either. I gave a bare minimum effort required to get by. I didn't want any attention, good or bad. So I wasn't on the dean's list, but I wasn't flunking out either. I just wanted to skate by. I hope you didn't even notice me. Like, mediocrity was my goal. And I was okay with that, you know? So, but I remember, uh, now this school's in a pretty rough neighborhood in Philadelphia. It's in North Philly. It's in the corner of 17th and Girard. And three blocks away is the subway. And at the end of the day, a lot of these kids would wait for the trolley car to take them three blocks to Broad Street to catch the subway. They were scared to walk through uh, the neighborhood. Well, two blocks away, on the corner of 15th and Girard, there was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. When I was a junior, I was a regular at the Ebony. And I went there for a couple of different reasons. You know, they had cold beer and they had dancers and things like that. But a lot of times, the only reason I went, because me and the kids in the neighborhood, we would stroll out Girard Avenue to show how tough we were to these kids in the suburbs. And I'm not a tough guy. I never was. And every time I strolled out Girard Avenue, I sat in that bar and ordered a beer. I was terrified but I don't want anybody else to know, you know? And I'm what? I'm 16, 17. I probably look like I'm 12. I'm, I'm kind of dressed like I am now, gray slacks, a blazer. And, you know, they figured, as you can tell by the name of the bar, I wasn't from the neighborhood, but they figured if I was crazy enough to sit in the bar, they, would, they were crazy enough to service, you know? <laughs> when it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education, and I really, uh I knew I could stay home because there'd be hell to catch, you know? And, uh, My options were limited. You know, I didn't have any money to come get an apartment. I had no skills. I didn't know what to do. So the only other thing that I thought was available to me was the military, and I enlisted in the military. That really wasn't a bright mood back then because nobody else was going. But, uh, you know, and I I enlisted, and I went overseas, and I spent 13 months overseas, and that's when my drinking really took off. I never messed around with other substances. Never even smoked a joint up to this point. I had a lot of good friends in my neighborhood a couple years older than me had going over and got whacked on certain things, and I remember when they came home, like my best friend, like his brother came back, and he was like never the same. So I had a fear of other substances. I would never mess around with that stuff. But I was definitely drunk before I went, and my drinking really took off. I was there a couple months, and several good friends of mine got killed, and I don't know how to handle that. Because in my family, we didn't talk about nothing. It was all the, all the surface stuff. And once you moved out of the house, whether you went to get married or whether you went away to school you were no longer privy to the secrets of the family. And that's not a shot at my folks. I mean, that's just the way it was. If you stayed in the house, everything stayed inside you. And once you moved out of the house, everything stayed within the walls of the home, so we no longer privy to the secrets, you know? And and we were good with secrets, you know? When my tour was up, I came home, I enrolled in school, I went to St. Joe's, and I wound up taking a couple civil service exams. And I remember it was the end of the spring semester, my first year in school, and uh, it was May, and... uh, the Phillies were playing, and the Phillies had since moved. They're playing at that stadium in South Philadelphia, and one of the guys from the neighborhood called me up. He said, Bobby, the Phillies are playing tomorrow. One of those main specials, you know, like one of those like, midweek afternoon games. They said, you want to go? I said, sure, because they weren't going to miss me in school. St. Joseph's is a small school. I mean, we probably, back then, we probably had about 2,500 students. The entire undergraduate body, you know, and... So our class was about 20 kids in the class, and they were, I wasn't participating in the class. wasn't making the dean's list, but uh wasn't, wasn't failing out either. Just doing the bare minimum effort required to get by. I said, sure, I'll go to the game.
0: And uh,
1: it was an unusually warm day in May, it was really hot, and I'm at the top of the 700 level, drinking that cheap watered-down beer, and the sun's beating down on me. And I told one of the guys I was with, I said, you know what, I said, I'm going to run down in the field and meet one of the players. And they say, okay, and they kind of shrugged me off because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. Like I, I would say, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I did that. I didn't do nothing. I just made stories up. That's all I did. I go and get off the bar saw. But this day, I, I worked my way down to the old picnic area, they had, the, uh, and I jumped over the fence, and the San Diego Padres went down, and Dave Winfield was the right fielder for the Padres. And I go running across the field, And I go up to Dave, I said, hi Dave, how you doing? And he looked at me, he said, brother, what are you doing out here? And he's a big dude, and from behind him, the guards were coming. I said, Dave, i got to go now. (laughs) So I start running towards the infield, I want to slide into second base. But the closer I got to the infield, the the more guards were coming from the third base side, and I knew I couldn't slide into second, because if I did, I'd get caught. So I start walking towards first base, and I'm walking at this point, like I'm going to give myself up. And there's a guard as close as Jim and I are right now, and I'm walking to give myself up. At the last second, I beat the guy around in the airfield. Now, I'm running around like a screwball. It seems like about ten minutes, but it's probably closer to like two or three, right? But the stadium's going nuts. Up on the, I mean, up on the scoreboard, they put Mr. Excitement. I mean, I'm running around. I swear to God, they couldn't catch me, you know, I'm, I'm right out of service. I'm in good shape, you know, I'm running around. And then all of a sudden, I got nowhere to go. The fence is 12 feet high. I mean, I'm drunk. I'm out of breath. I'm about to get sick. I got all these short, young, fat guys trying to catch me and uh, making them look stupid. And uh, I finally stopped running. I just stopped out of the center field. I didn't know where else to go. I was just waiting for them. And as they grabbed me, they took me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. What Tug McGraw was in the bullpen. and He gave me the thumbs up as they were sticking me up. Now, I knew I was going to get a beating from these guards because I made them look so stupid. They could have beat on me all day long. Not only that standing ovation, that was incredible, but not only that. See, this would be a type of story I would make up, like Shit Bob, right? But I had them four guys from the neighborhood who were my witnesses. I knew I'd be a legend. I could drink for free in the neighborhood for the next week. No doubt about it. (laughs) You know, a few weeks prior to this, you know, when I had came home, I wound up taking a couple of civil service exams, and then as they were just as I was about to get my beaten, a Philadelphia of your police lieutenant showed up. He said, "What's the matter with you?" He said, "Are you drunk? Are you high?" I said, "No, I'm just happy. I'm just happy to be here." He said, "Well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium." So not only did he save me from getting a beaten, but he saved me from getting arrested because that was important because one of them civil service exams kind of panned out. And Six weeks later, I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department.
0: <laughs> they was hired anybody back then. <laughs>
1: I got hired. There was 8,300 of us, and we were nothing with gang with badges. We had a maritime at the time, a name named Frank Briso. Frank was a former cop. and police commissioner himself. He loved us. We did whatever the hell we wanted to do. I wasn't even old enough to drink. The drinking age in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has always been 21. And I tell you, it, the drink in pennsylvania was hard it was, it was a job uh, never got my way i did it but for instance and i talked to a guy there's a guy from here from phil that i talked to before uh, the meeting started first of all the state store whenever i travel i go to these other states like even here like you can go to a, like and get gas and buy beer and like booze in a store Man, that, that throws me for a loop because back home we had state stores and the state stores closed early and you couldn't go shopping like you went to the counter and needed to tell them what you have i see these guys go up and down the aisles and hey that's nice but you had to tell them, and to buy beer, you could only go to the bar to buy a six-pack, or you go to a beer distributor and buy a case. That was the only way to buy beer, too. And we had blue laws, and so the, uh, everything was closed on, on Sunday. But where I lived in Philly, I could go over to Jersey, where the drinking age in Jersey was 18. And where I lived in Philly, I could be in Jersey, and I could be in other parts of Philadelphia. Not that it ever got in the way, but I just want to let you know, it's a chore to drink. But, you
0: know, <laughs> you got to
1: do what you got to do, right? Well, once I got on the job, I no longer had to worry about that stuff. You know, I remember when he swore us in, we held up our, you know, our IDs, and he said, gentlemen, in your hand, you're holding the, best t- you're holding the ticket for the best show in town. And, man, he was so right, you know. And uh, I spent my first 10 years in North Philadelphia, where I would see the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of the tour, I would go out with guys in the squad, and I would drink to numb the pain. See, I saw, uh, you know, I saw some things in the job that bothered me, but I couldn't tell my coworkers that because I didn't want to be caught last time. I wanted to be one of the boys to the point where I even engaged in behaviors in my gut that was wrong, the way I spoke and treated other people. But the need for me to be accepted by my coworkers outweighed anything else. And you know what? The handwriting was on the wall. And I was like, well, the last guy to figure it out. I remember I was at work one day and my immediate supervisor pulled me up to the side. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're smart and you're going to go places. That booze is going to mess you up. In one ear and out the other. I was at a family function one time and my uncle was there. My uncle, he was a boss of the job. And he pulled me off to the side. He said, Bobby, I'm hearing stories about you. You're going to get yourself in a jackpot. You better take it easy. In one ear and out the other. Several years later, on two separate occasions, I ran into that uncle and that supervisor in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized at that point that they were trying to 12-step me. And I remember when I finally got sober, I was talking to my Uncle Jimmy. I said, how come you tell me? You know, he gave me one of the old smiles. He said, Bobby, you just weren't ready yet. Which just goes to show you that know, all the drinking and all the nonsense that went with it were necessary to hit my bottom. I knew about Apple Anonymous. I made my first meeting in 1979. I don't tell people I went out, because I really never came in. But I'll tell you what happened. I showed up at work one day, and one of my coworkers, one of the guys I worked with, man, he was just out of his mind, drunk. And on the job, we had an EAP unit, and within that unit, they had like an AA group. And uh, I showed up at work, and the supervisor said, he said, take this guy and he's detailed with the unit for the day. I said, okay. And there was this little house that sat in the park, and I come down the driveway, and there was a guy sitting on the porch. His name was Eddie, Eddie M. And Eddie and I worked out of the same building. He was like the turnkey downstairs. I know him. And I pulled up. I said, Eddie, I said, I'm going to drop this guy off. He's detailed here for the day. I'll be back at four o'clock to pick him up. He looked me dead in the eye. He said, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no, I don't. I was insulted that he even asked me. Because I knew what alcoholics were. Alcoholics were you older guys, you, you guys, were the married guys, you guys with three heads. I mean, I knew what alcoholics were. These poor people I was dealing with day in, day out. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was a beer drinker. There's no way you could be an alcoholic drinking beer. I mean, the only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or Pay Day. But, you know... <laughs> But I remember, and it was predominantly beer. I mean, a little Irish whiskey, but mostly beer and some rum, but mostly beer. And I remember when I got sober, my first one of my first outside meetings. Eddie was one of the first guys I saw, and he just gave me big old smiles. It's okay, you finally came around. And again, just to show you, I needed to do all that nonsense to get in here. You know, I was uh, 24 years old and shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in the line of work, and in a terrible situation that couldn't be avoided. the psychologists now have a phrase, suicide by, by, by police, but 20 some years ago that phrase wasn't around, and I used it as an excuse to crawl in a bottle, and that's what I did for my next three years. I went up being sober when I was 27. Booze took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of those nevers was the use of other substances. I went up getting promoted and transferred on the job, and I was drinking one night because I thought it was part of what I needed to do, and I was put in a position where I thought I needed to do other substances because I was drinking, my judgment was impaired, and I got involved in other substances. My drug history is very short. It lasted 17 months. It caused me and a lot of other people around me a lot of heartache. And out of respect for the tradition, that's all I need to talk about, that stuff. It just went with the territory, you know? I was sitting home from work one day, and I'm reading the Daily News, and there's a story, and then at the end of the story, there's a little box, and there's some questions in it. It said alcohol problems, drug problems, the, the marital problems, depression, thoughts of suicide. I was four out of five. I was single. And I'm sure I was married. I'm a bat in a thousand. The and they talk about the moment of clarity, but as soon as it came, it quickly left. But I cut, out the wallet, I cut out the article and I stuck it in my wallet and I continued on drinking, you know? I need to back up for a bit. That story I talk about running on the field, I, I tell that story for a couple of different reasons. One, it's, uh, it's the only funny story I got. <laughs> I wasn't a funny guy. I, I, I wasn't an athlete or lover. I, I was none of that stuff. I was a lying, thieving, stinking, falling down, violent, drunk. And if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. I used and abused every person I came in contact with, you know. Secondly, it's a true story. I mean, I got them full guys in the neighborhood that backed me up, you know. But thirdly, and more importantly, I was, a, I was a major blackout drinker. I was a blackout drinker from the very first start. I remember when I was finally going away in the VA hospital and the doctor said, Do you ever have any blackouts? I said, no. And I must have answered too quickly for him because he said, do you know what they are? I said, no. Once he described them to me, I said, all the time. I thought that's how you knew you had a good load. You know, I didn't think, well, I didn't know what the hell the term was, you know. And, you know, I would come up to the corner the next day and guys would tell me, like, oh, Bobby you was a mess last night. And he would be telling me these stories. And then a few hours later when I was out, I would be telling these stories like I remembered them, you know you know so uh I'm drinking my life is a shambles you know and uh, it was uh, Memorial Day weekend 1988 me and the guys that I worked with uh, we were in some trouble so we went to get our story straight so we met in a bar after work one day and then we just started drinking I, I guess we forgot why we were there and things got out of hand and one of the guys I was with decided that he needed to drive home for some reason he needed to leave and us not i said, give you a ride home no big deal I'm a show-off, always was. And I was going to show off my driving skills to this guy. Because I thought I was a pretty good driver. And it was pretty easy to do, especially when I never owned the vehicle I was driving. You know, I was one of these city cars. And I would see things on television or in the movies that I would try to replicate, you know. And I was never successful. I now know they got stunt guys and all that stuff is all set up and trick cameras and all that crazy stuff. But I would always try to do it. And I would make up some stories, like, you know. And they knew, but I, I never got caught. But, like, they knew. So... But I was going to drive, and I was going to show off my driving skills to this guy. And I'm driving out this street, and uh, about a, two blocks away, I see the kid riding towards me on a bicycle. And I was going to show off my driving skills, and I decided I was going to play chicken with this kid. Because sort of left of me, was like a large, uh, big wall, and about eight, nine feet high. So as I was getting closer to this kid, I pulled my car up on the, the sidewalk uh, to play chicken with him. And unfortunately, at the last second, we both turned in the same direction. I ran this kid over. As he lied bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car with my night and was going to beat this kid with my night sick because I thought he was an open knee and the city for an insurance claim. The guy that I was with prevented me from doing this. I took this kid off the hood of my car and threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car and threw that off the side like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar and made some sort of smart out remark and I continued on drinking. When I came to it the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. And I was a creep, you know. And I do not know what to do. So I got a case of beer and a bottle of liquor and some other substances, and I checked in the hotel with the intention to consume all this stuff to build up the courage in my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the hotel door to kick me out. And at this point, I was suspended from my job, so I no longer had access to my weapon, so I couldn't suit myself. So what I did, I walked over to the window. I opened up the window, I was going to jump out the window. And when I went over, I opened up the window. I was on the fifth floor of the hotel. And I remembered I was scared of heights. I made 23 jumps and never overcame my fear of heights. So then I went into the bathroom. I filled the bathtub up with water and I had a blow dryer. I was gonna pull the blow dryer into the tub and make it appear an accidental electrocution. But every time I'd pull the blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. <laughs> I was about a foot and a half short on cord, and I got one foot in the tub and I'm leaning trying to plug it in. I couldn't even do that damn thing right, you know. And uh, you know, it's uh, and it's okay to live. I I just don't want to forget the pain I was in that day. So the only other tool that I had left was my car, and I took one last spin through my neighborhood. And I was going to, uh, I started up on the uh, by the Falls Bridge, I come down East River Drive, which is a very winding road along the Skokvah River, and I come down the drive, and it was like a Wednesday, uh, a Wednesday Thursday morning around eleven o'clock, and that would be important because if this was any other time of the day, I would have probably succeeded in what my intent was, which was going to oncoming traffic and end my life. And I handled enough jobs like this; I knew I could do the trick. You know, and I'm coming down the drive, you know, and I'm hungover, and I'm pooped, and I'm crying, and I'm, you know, the speed limit is like 20, and I'm doing 40 or 50. And something hit me emotionally. I now know with my higher power then, I didn't recognize that. I didn't want to go into oncoming traffic because of one reason only, you know. Uh, I had a, an experience before, and it was probably one of my more calm experiences, considering the area in which I work. But I actually had to do a notification before I knock on this guy's door and tell him that his kid was killed in an automobile accident. And um, he was a fairly young guy. He was probably in his late 30s, early 40s at the time. And uh, I actually saw like life leave this guy. I mean, that, that's the only way I can describe it. This guy literally aged in front of my eyes. And I would remember I saw him a few weeks later during the court process. And he, he never recovered. He was never the same guy. And you know what? This was not even close. Like, to stuff that I was dealing with day in, day out, much worse. But for that guy always haunted me. And, you know, as I thought about going to all comfort traffic, for some reason I just, this guy's face appeared in my uh, mind. And I did not want to cause anybody else any type of more grief that this family went through, you know. And so I decided I would wrap myself around a tree, and I handled enough jobs like that. I knew that would do the trick to it. I got these big old trees along the drive. And then I just started crying, and I just lost it, you know, and then, and I finally pulled over at the end of East River Drive is Boathouse Row. And I sat behind the wheel of my car and I cried like a baby for about 10 minutes. And I reached in my glove box and in the glove box was my wallet. And inside that wallet was that article that I clipped out of Daily News a couple of weeks before. And it's no longer there, but at the end of the, the last boathouse, it was one of those old places called bills. And I went over the phone booth and I dialed the good number up. And the woman who answered the phone, I spoke to this woman like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. I figured out she didn't know me from a can of pain. I could always hang up. But you know what? Once I started, I couldn't stop. And I just told her everything that was going on in my life. And God bless her. She listened patiently. And she said, listen, why don't you drive over to Hahnemann Hospital? Somebody's waiting to talk to you. I said, okay. So I drove over to Hanuman. It was about a five-minute ride away. And they were waiting for me. They admitted me to their 10th ward of psychiatric unit. And they kept me there for about three or four days. They got me kind of stabilized. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in the uh, 38th of Woodland, West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And there I got transferred to the VA hospital on Coastville. When I pulled over that day to ask for help, well, when I made that phone call, really, I didn't realize I was asking for help. When I made that phone call, alcohol synonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I thought maybe it was my short use of other substances, but if I left that crap alone, I'd be okay. Maybe I, uh, I'm i mentally ill and I inherit that from my mother. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're now talking about. It. I got this from the experience in the service or I got this experience in a job. Maybe it's the neighborhood I live in. Maybe it's the fact that I'm a mummer. But it can't be alcohol because I'm a beer drinker and there's no way you could be an alcoholic drinking beer, you know? I got put into the alcohol and drug ward at the DA hospital. And by this point I probably have about, I guess, about eight, 8 to 10, about 10 weeks under my belt, you know, from the various nut wards. And uh, when I get into the Yakuza Drug Ward, I'm there probably about an hour or so, and I gotta scout, get the light of lane, you know. And I wander into the day room, and in the day room, they have the large window shades of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions up on the wall. And I go up through steps, and I have to zip through them. I got about six of them done already. I see the amends. I say, that's screw. that don't apply to me, you know. But what happened later that night? Two men came up to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would later find out that they were part of the Treatment Facility Committee. Did not know that then. But so the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I could not relate to, did not identify with, or plainly didn't like, I immediately tune him out. See, I was too busy listening to the messenger and not the message. Now I'm looking around my peers, and you know what? I'm not as bad as these guys. A lot of these guys are telling stories in group how their kids hate them, their families hate them, they're not welcome. I didn't have that problem. Due to the fact that I'd never been married, I didn't have any children. A lot of these guys had some legal problems. I didn't have any legal problems, probably due to the fact that I had a gold shield in my back pocket. I was looking for the differences and not the similarities, you know. And but what bothered me the, me the most, without any question, at the end of this first meeting that I experienced, everyone got in a circle, held hands, and said the Lord's prayer. If this is what you people are about, that I don't want nothing to do with you, because I hated God. I there were a couple of different reasons why I hated God, and they're all legitimate. But I, I broke away from the group and would not say the prayer. One of the main reasons I hated God, I talk about my mom's mental illness. My mom was like a fundamentalist with the church, you know. And she was in the charismatic movement, and she, could believe, she believed she could speak in tongues. And there was pictures and candles and all that stuff throughout the house. I was 15 years old. I came home from school one day, and I'm in the house for about 10 minutes or so. And I came across my mother, and my mother had slit her wrist. She look. she looked up at me. She said, Bobby, help me?" I looked down and I said, "Good for you." And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to go to the state store and got a bottle of wine. And I stayed out and I drank the wine. I came home later that night. And my father told me what had happened, and I asked in surprise, I said, "Oh yeah, how about that?" See, that happened when I was 15. I got sober, and I was 27. That's 12 years of hating God. It would be a few more years before I would even address this. So I wasn't saying any prayer with anybody. When it was time to get out of the VA hospital, a woman came up to me, a nurse there, and I'm about to say to some employees, it's not to get a joke, you know, she had to be a member of al She was just a beautiful lady, and she saw all through my BS. You know, she came up to me, she said, you know what, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to whole Anonymous." And I need to tell you, that's the best piece of advice I got. You know, and that's where I would get my recovery. I got it in the AA. I did not get it at the VA hospital. The VA hospital helped me tremendously with a lot of different things they really did but I would forget my recovery in AA. And I went to AA every single day, sometimes two or three times a day, depending on where I was working, you know. I would get there late and I'd leave early. I don't drink coffee, I've never drank in my life, so I don't make it. I don't smoke cigarettes I've never had in my life, so I don't have any ashtrays. If so I walk into a big book meeting or step meeting that was strictly reaction, I would leave at the break. That's something more important to do. God forbid tradition meetings, rules. My line of work, we love no forcing. we don't like the or for other people. I didn't take your phone numbers because most of your are screwballs. I don't like you anyway. But I made meetings every single day. I was crazy as a bed bug. I remember the very first meeting I made, I remember there was a husband and wife speaking. And by the way, just for the record, I'm going by that clock right there. I got the 9.30. Three uh, clock watchers. Uh, I, got a, I remember the very first meeting I went to, so there was a husband and wife speaking. They both had 10 years. The wife had one more day than her husband. And she constantly reminded him of that throughout her story.
0: <laughs> and I couldn't
1: believe that. I said, 10 years. You know, I to, you know you're lying. I maybe you go over in Jersey and drink and keep your Pennsylvania time. I, I, I mean, I, I was, I, I, I couldn't, you know, 10 years, multiple years. I, I couldn't understand that. But there was a guy from my neighborhood. His name was Troubles. And that was a hard-earned nickname. And Troubles was in and out of jail in the 60s and 70s, you know. And uh, I knew of him. And, like, I know him to say hello, but like, we weren't acquaintances. And Troubles was over almost two years. My neighborhood at that time was going through a, uh, a gentrification process. It was like a very blue-collar ethnic, and the factories had closed. Well, now the yuppies came in, and the factories became loft apartments and things like that. And uh, so there was a lot of conflict in the neighborhood. And my experience, of Anonymous is just a microcosm of society. What happens out there happens in here just on a smaller scale. And that's what happened in my the neighborhood, the AA meetings in my neighborhood, which I first got released to the A hospital. So the, the neighborhood people were one side and yuppies were on the other. And Troubles was the only guy that I knew, even though I didn't know him personally, I knew of him. And I was impressed with him. He was sober almost two years, and he had this glow about him. And I need to tell you that's the only reason I came back to Apple synonymous, because I didn't know anybody else. I didn't believe you. The meeting ended with the holding of their hands and saying to prayer, and I wouldn't do it. So, but I came back, and I made meetings all the time, and I need to tell you, that's the only thing I did right in my first couple years of sobriety, because everything else I did wrong. I was sitting in this bar, I was sober, I don't know, uh, I don't know, 11, just under a year, 11 months or so, because they sold real good roast beef. That's why I was that dumb boy. That's what I said then, but you know, uh, the truth is, the reason I was there, because I told you earlier that I'm an arrogant guy. And I was very aggressive with my job and I generated a lot of publicity in this case you happen to miss it, I would have an extra article or so for you to take home, put your scrapbook if you are interested. so, to- Towards the end of my drink, I you know there was a lot of negative publicity and that's why I was in that bar that day. I wanted, I'm back, don't believe the hype, everything you've heard that, know, I'm, I'm okay. That's why I was there. Well, a couple of guys from the neighborhood came in and they saw me there and they thought it was necessary to knock me down a couple pegs because of my arrogance, I couldn't understand. And they just really just start, you know, breaking, you know, you know, give me a hard way to go, you know, with the taunts and whatnot. And I was getting really disgusted. And this one guy got in my face, and I'm drinking seltzer out of a rock glass, you know. He got a little too close for me. And I stood up and I punched him right in the face with a rock glass. And I opened him up, I cut him up, he bled like a pig. And I remember the, the uniform guys came in. I knew one of the guys who handled the job. He looked at me and said, man, what the hell's going on? I told him what happened. He said, you're nuts. He said, get the hell out of here. And that's where I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. And I have since found a place that sells real good, real beef food out being in that type of environment. So if you ever come in a neighborhood, I will go out and have a sandwich, and I promise, you know, uh, I won't hit anybody with a rock lash. (laughs) I was nuts. I celebrated my one-year anniversary. I got done speaking. It was in my home group at that time. You told your story. I got done speaking. It was incredible, incredible experience. You know, thunderous applause. uh, the blind saw, the, the lame could walk. It was a really incredible experience. <laughs> and people came up and patted me in the back and said, Bobby, you're doing so good. I lied during my entire story. The fact I identified myself as an alcoholic, because my home group at that time, you couldn't talk about that other stuff. And I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. Again, I thought my problem was the short use of other substances. If I left that crap alone, I'd be okay. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're talking about. I got this from the, you know, the job. I got this from the, uh, the service. Maybe I got this mental illness and heard from my mother. It can't be alcohol, you know. I'm a beer drinker, It can't be an alcoholic. In fact, the of my story, I'm giving you all the quotes because I'm a pretty sharp guy and you know you can hold the information, give it back to yeah, you. I knew it would have good. But during my story, a bottle of beer appeared in my head, but like, you guys don't want to hear that. You want to hear all the quotes, and that's what I gave you. And you came up and patted me in the back and said, Bobby, you're doing so good. And I'm dying inside, you know. I like the older guys. But, but I hated the older guys, you know? I would, at the end of the meeting, I would hang around and wait to get the invitation to go to the diner afterwards and say, Bobby, you were going out? You want to go with us? I'd say, no. But I made sure I got that invitation, and when I didn't get that invitation, I'd be mad as hell.
0: But, I, but when I did get it, I never
1: went out with you anyway. I mean, I, I was nuts. I swear to God, I was nuts, you know?
0: I, I was sober 23
1: months and beat another man with a baseball bat. forget what step I was working that day.
0: I swear to God, that's what I got. That's I, I did everything
1: wrong you could do in Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing I didn't do, I didn't pick up a drink, you know? And people just patted me on the back and said, That's okay, Bobby, just don't drink. And I took it as I could do whatever the hell I want to do, just not drink, you know? I swear to God, true story, you know, my first couple years, I used to go to um, a lot of gentlemen's clubs, right? I drank soda. I would get my picture taken with the entertainer, right? And I would come to meetings and pass the picture around to the old timers because I knew they would like that. <laughs> They would look at the picture, and they would shake their head, and they said, please, kid, please keep coming back. And I thought they were being facetious. I said, all right, I'll keep coming back. I mean, I was nuts. I, sh- you know, I swear to God, I, ha- I had no idea who John Barleycorn was.
0: I-, I I,
1: was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, I want to tangle with him. He's a pretty tough SOB." When I found out who John Barleycorn was, I felt so stupid. that damn near killed me. Because, I mean, here it was, I was so bright. I mean, that was just nuts, you know? It was, it, was, it was crazy. You know, guys in the head, you know, they tricked me. Uh, you know, the way you trick a new guy, you come up and ask him a question, you don't get them a chance to formulate the lie. They came up and say, Bobby, you working this weekend? And before I knew it, I said no. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was too late. I wish I had the words back. They said, okay, we're going to go on a retreat this weekend. We're going to take on a retreat. I said, oh, Christ. I tell you, I always made meetings. The worst meetings was Sunday night after retreat. Like, I'd be in a meeting Friday and Saturday night and so say, where the hell's everyone at? Then Sunday night, i show up and say, oh, here they come.
0: <laughs>
1: All floating in and talking, you know. And uh, i just sit there. I was so uncomfortable. i tell you, serene people scared the hell out of me. When I, then the only time I got my hand up was to take a shot, to get somebody, you know, take a shot at somebody or to share my insanity to get the me- meeting off and get it kind of goofy. And I'd sit back and watch the show. It's the way to go. I mean, I just, it was just nuts. Uh, so they, they said, uh, we're going to go on a retreat this weekend. We're going to take you with us. It's okay. And, uh, you know, it was funny because it was a Friday afternoon. They put me in the back seat with a big guy on each side of me. It's like role rehearsal. At work, I'm driving. You're in the back seat. But here I am in the back seat with a guy on each side of me. I guess they thought I was going to bail out. And the truth is, you know what? I really like these guys. They were good guys. They really were. I, I just, uh, you know, they intimidated me. People doing the right thing scared me. Because I never had the courage to do, do the right thing. I hid behind the badge. I hid behind the bottle. I never had the courage to do the right thing. And uh, I really wanted to tell these guys about my mom, but, you know, I knew I couldn't. See, at this point, I was sober long enough. I knew where you couldn't get kicked out of AA. But I was also sober enough, made enough meetings where I knew that not everyone was always treated as one as the next person for one reason or the other, my experience. And if I told them the truth about my mom, like, what would they really think? I knew I would definitely be ostracized, you know. But the need for me to be accepted by these guys outweighed anything else. So it was worth, like, going up to this retreat house the bigger than that my stomach got, and I was just really uncomfortable. We get to the retreat house. It's like a Friday afternoon, about about 4, 4.30. They said, we want to introduce you to the retreat. master. I said, all right, come on, let's get this over with. They take me down like this little hallway. They knock on this door. Guy says, come in. I walk in. He stands up and gives you a big old smile, and then he hugs me. He's my disciplinarian from high school. (laughs) But not only that, but I also find out that he's a long-time member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he gave me a smile and a hug and he said, man, it's good to see you. What's going on? How you doing? I said, I'm doing good. How you doing? Wants to know how long I'm sober, telling him what the deal is, where I'm going to meetings and things like that. He said, that's great. He said, who's your sponsor? I said, I don't have one. See, I'm a pretty bright guy. He knew it. He knew I was a bright guy, too. He said, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. I said, okay, I'll get a sponsor. Then I asked my roommate to be my sponsor. God forbid, should I ever be questioned again. Bobby, holds your sponsor? There he goes, right there.
0: <laughs>
1: and the only time I talked to him is when I accidentally bumped to him in the meetings. I would see him in the meetings. He waved at me. say, "Bye." I still got that same phone number. say, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. You know what I used to do? I used to go to people and say, you won't believe this guy. He wants me to do this. He told me to do that. He didn't do nothing. I made it all up. Not only did he put the hand of AA out there, I, not only did I slap it away, then I character assassinated the guy to boot.
0: <laughs> I, I,
1: I was nuts. I tell you, I hated everybody. But you know I hated the most? I hated the new guys. How dare they get better before me? <laughs>
0: you know,
1: because at this point, okay, now I'm believing you got the time that you said in early sobriety, and I'm believing you was all lying. But now it's okay. I say, mean, okay, you may have a couple years. I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Our, our home group, we had a court board, first name, last initial, date, month, and how many years you're celebrating, the anniversary board? Two stories, what do you got? Joey A got three years, and Bobby C got two, and Joey A went out. I said, good for him, I move up.
0: I mean, I, I'm about time.
1: That's what it is. What it is. Everyone saying how long is uh, I got more time than him. Good, he's out. I mean, that's how nuts I was. I swear to God. No one asked me to be their sponsor. No one wanted what the hell I had. I didn't carry the disease. I carried the mess. I was just nuts. I mean, you know, I was just nuts. I, you know, my second anniversary came. I didn't celebrate it. One month after my second anniversary came, I went to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but 25 months before I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone cold sober. I want to eat my gun. It's the to my life is unmanageable. I was in a meeting on a Friday night, and I saw Troubles there. I went up to him after the meeting and said, Bobby, because like I said, no one called him Troubles, anything like that. I said, Bobby, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? He looked at me. I said, Bobby, I've been watching you these past couple years, years. I'm not going to my chest out. I said, yeah, he kind of likes me. He says, I need to tell you. He said, you're full of shit. That's not the response I'm looking for. (laughs) He said, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. Hey, you're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment. And you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm saying to myself, who's he talking to?
0: I'm sober
1: 25 months. I'm sowing the grapevines. I got it going on. (laughs) But what I did do, I looked them dead in the eye. I said, okay, that's what I'm willing to do. You know? And that's the night that I worked the first three steps. Like I said, I went to eat my... I knew that I was proud of alcohol. But there's no question about that. I knew that. But like I said, I went to eat my gun. Definitely, there was my life was unmanageable. And as much as I hated God, and I still do, did at that time, I knew that, you know, there was definitely a power greater in myself because I saw it in the new people coming in behind me. You know, I would see these people come in who couldn't even speak complete sentences, and here it is, they're celebrating a year anniversary, and they're taking their cake, and their life is getting better. I saw these people, like the other people in AA, I didn't believe you with your time, but these people I saw come in, they were mess, terrible human beings, and they got better in front of my eyes. So I knew that there was something working. I just had a misdirected resentment. So after that meeting that night, we went back to his house, and he introduced me to the big book, and we start doing some reading. And at the end of our reading and discussion, which I did most of the listening, um, he said, okay, now we're ready. And we got on our knees together and said the third step prayer. And when we got done saying the prayer, he said, Bobby, the way we do a third step is we pick up paper and pen and we do a fourth step. I said, whoa. Easy does it. <laughs> Don't want to get well too soon. <laughs> well, let's keep it simple. I, all these slogans, but and the truth is, you know, I have a little fun with that, but the truth is that the slogans serve a legitimate purpose. You know, you got to understand them now, but I use it as an excuse to not do any work. I mean, I didn't want to do a four-step. I'd go to meetings and people say, oh, four-step, starting some stuff up. I feel like drinking. I feel like going out. I felt like eating my gun. You can't get no further out than that. So I did my four-step, did my inventory, and you know what? It was no big, no big deal. I mean, I'm a, somewhat of a lazy guy. It took me a while to finish it up. When my back was against the wall, when I was in emotional turmoil, I was willing to do some work. And when things were trying to work cool, and I was staying sober on yesterday's sobriety, I would do that too. So it took me about, I don't know, about eight weeks to finish it up. But that fifth step, that, that's the biggie. But I'm a pretty bright guy. I got that figured out. So I called my sponsor up. I said, Bobby, I'm going on a retreat this week, and I'm going to do that fifth step with a priest. He said, great, when you get done, stop by my house so you can do what with need. And, you know, sometimes, like, you look at the small, like, you're talking to your sponsor, like, they don't get it sometimes. You know? And before I could say something flip, like, I, I was didn't get it. And he said, Bobby, he says, I'm your sponsor. He said, this is a journey. If I'm, help- if I'm to help you with your character defects, I think I need to know what they are. Even though I have an idea, and they hung up on me. <laughs> now, the truth is, the reason I wanted to do this fifth step with a priest, it was not to be spiritually enlightened. I still had a resentment. I still hated God, that, you know. I still wasn't saying the prayer. The truth was, there was a lot of things about my unit that I was embarrassed about. And I was afraid to talk to my sponsor for the fear that he would ridicule me, pass judgment, or even worse, break the confidence. I just knew through my upbringing that if I talked to the priest, it would be between me, him, and the lamppost, and nobody else. I never did that this step with a priest. I did it with my sponsor. And he did none of those things. It turned out to be unfounded fears. He didn't ridicule me. He didn't pass judgment. And did the best of my knowledge. He never told anybody else. You know? When I got done, I was about to leave. I so, said, whoa, where are you, know. so you going? You know. He lived by himself. He had a pretty good-sized home. He had a house. He had a room that was set up as a quiet room. And he said, you need to sit here for that one hour. I said, wow, like I could never sit quietly anywhere, you know? I actually sat quietly for that one hour, and probably a little bit longer, and I didn't go as well, but I had to be past an hour because he actually knocked on the door to see if I was okay. And I can only share my experience. And at this point, I'm probably sober 33, 34 months. And my experience was it's the screaming inside stuff Now, that may not sound like a lot, but you know, for me, that was a hell of a reward. Because my head was always racing, you know. Sober, I no longer had alcohol or other substances to hide behind, you know. And so, it was a credible experience. We didn't burn my fourth step, doing step five. He said I would need these for the rest of the steps, and he was right. Six and seven character defects. I knew when I drank that I was a character. I found out when I drank, uh when I did my inventory, that I had no character whatsoever. I thought I was the greatest cop in the world, you know, I had all these uh, words and stuff. And it turned out that I wasn't, you know, the way I just spoke to people, I was disrespected people, I engaged in reckless behavior, that put all the people's safety at harm, I thought I was the greatest uncle, all my nephews and nieces, they all loved me, you know, because I took care of them financially. The truth was, I wasn't a good uncle, you know. Key family obligations I would miss. You know, all, I would lie, So I was working overtime and things like that. You know, I was a terrible boyfriend. They kept leaving me, you know, because I, uh, I was self centered and self uh, centered to the extreme. I didn't care about anybody needs but my own, you know. So I wasn't. And that, you know, I tell people, I, I don't know if I had a spiritual awakening, but I definitely had a rude awakening, you know. So, uh, eight nine. And making amends. I was one of these guys going the eighth and nine steps and says, I never harmed anybody but myself. Right there should have been a tip-off. I never did my inventory. Because once I got down my inventory that I found out that I harmed everybody I came in contact with. And unfortunately, those closest to me the most, I harmed the most. You know, the eighth step, I, because I didn't burn my fourth step and I did the fifth, half my eighth step was done. and I had to throw more names in there. The ninth step I amends. No phone calls and no letters from me because I didn't beat you with a bat through the uh, phone or over you know through the mail you know. And whenever I want to take those measures you know and I could say well you know Joey moved out of neighborhood you know you know. The truth is you know uh, I'm afraid to face people. That's when I want to pick up paper and pen. The nice step direct amends. you know and I'd like to share two experiences on the nine step very quickly. I was in a meeting about 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And I saw a guy who walked down the steps. I have not seen this guy since 1977. He is not on my A-step list, not for any fear or anything else. I just plain forgot. know, out of sight, out no of mind. But as soon as he came down the steps, I recognized him. And I'll tell you what I used to do. I used to, uh, we, we grew up together. We were in a bar one time. And we had words, and he kind of backed down. And so from that point on, whenever I wanted to oppress anybody how tough or nuts I was, I would pick on this guy, and he was much bigger than I am, you know. And like I said, I'm not a tough guy. I never was. But, you know, it was the verbal taunts, you know, I called them names and stuff like that. Then one day I slapped him, he didn't do nothing. Then one day I spat upon him. I mean, what worse, utter degradation to spitting on another human being, you know? I recognized him right away, he did not recognize me. When I got introduced to speak, I stood up, I looked him dead in the eyes, and said, my name is Bobby Coyle, and I'm an alcoholic. And I need to take a minute real quickly and tell you why I used my full name. I know these traditions are really top secret, so, in fact, it's nice that your group actually reads them. That's somewhat unusual. But I think the, the, uh, these traditions tend to be misunderstood and no more so than this 11 tradition. All of a sudden, we get sober. It's like we do in the mafia, you know. We get all the nicknames. We got Frank the Fox and Jimmy the Coat and Bucktooth Mary and Fetchy George and Red Sweater Jerry, and the list goes on. <laughs> all of a sudden, I get sober. I don't want anybody to know. Everybody in my neighborhood knows I'm a stark, raven, lunatic, drunk. There's those little telltale signs. They come outside, I'd be urinating in their car. <laughs> my girlfriend threw the clothes out the window, you know. All of a sudden, I get sober. God forbid my reputation should be tarnished by going to AA, right? <laughs> you know?
0: The 11th tradition
1: is real clear. Personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. That means you will never see my face clearly identifiable, followed by my full name, which is Robert Ignatius Benedict Coyle III, followed by a statement, is a member of Alpha Hawks Anonymous. That would be a violation of the 11th tradition, whether it's on the television, on the newspaper, or on the radio. Dr. Bob once said, and I was always told to cite this source, so you can find this in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. It's a great book. Dr. Bob said when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. He went on to say that anonymity is spiritually inspired and secrecy is fear-inspired. He said this is not a secret society. I mean, God forbid, 3 o'clock in the morning you feel like drinking, you're going to call information? I'd like to have Frank the Fox's phone number. (laughs) Or you're going to go to the hospital and visit one of these beloved old-timers? Yeah, I'm here to see Jimmy the Coat. I mean, (laughs) you know, good luck. And I was very involved in the area back home where we choose to use our full name. However, I have no right whatsoever to break your anonymity. If you choose not to use your full name, that's cool. I respect that, you know, but I just use my full name. So back to the meeting, I looked this guy dead in the eye, said, my name is Bobby Cuda, I'm an alcoholic. And then he nodded, he recognized me. Towards the end of my talk, I looked him dead in the eye. It was time for the ninth step. I was told the ninth step was making much more than saying I'm sorry, because for me there's two words that don't mean squat. It's about righting the wrong. So, I figured the least I could do if I humiliated him publicly, the least I could do is make amends to him publicly. And I told the group the way I used to treat him. And I said, Bob, a, as long as I stay sober, I hope I never treat you or any other human being the way I treated you. You know what? And he came up and he hugged me. It was a tr- an incredible experience. You know? I start talking to him after the meeting. said, Bob, I ain't seen you in years. How you doing? He said, I'm sober three years. And I have to walk now. I said, so get out of here. Then the arrogance creeps in because everybody in the gang in Philadelphia knows me. I'm very, they don't all like me. They all know me, at least, you know. Very involved in service, you know. And I said, man, what brings you here tonight? And this was, we were in North Philadelphia, a meeting that we normally would not have been. I lived in South Philadelphia, and he lives in Roxborough, which is like Northwest Philadelphia. He said, Bobby, I just want to go to a different meeting. I slipped him through the meeting directory. For some reason, this meeting jumped out at me. We have 1,600 meetings a week. Our meeting directory is 80 pages. He said, for some reason, this meeting just jumped out at me. I'm a firm believer that my God put that guy in my path that night, and I could do what I did. I could make amends, or I could do what I always did before. See, the nice thing about having eight siblings in a ten-year span, there's always a close resemblance, and people will come up to me and say, "I know you, S.O.B. I know you're cool. I don't know which one." So oh, you got me confused. You're talking about my brother Brian and my brother Sean, you know? I had to make amends to my brothers too, you know. So, you know. The other, the other experience with a nice step real quickly is I was at a, a home group, and my home group was Stepping Stones Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I made a motion, and it was definitely for the betterment of AA, I know, because I made it. It had to be. A very unusual thing that happened, and the motion never got seconded. I've never seen it happen again. Every, motion. <laughs> every motion gets a seconded, regardless of how crazy it is. Everyone gets a seconded, at least. But mine doesn't even get seconded, which is really even more baffling, because my boy Freddie's in the room. And I grew up in the neighborhood. Everybody knew what the rules were as, well. as, as warped as they may be. There were certain rules. One, like if you dated, you know, one of my friends back in school, like you couldn't do that. You, you never went out with any of your friends' exes. You just don't do that any right thing to do. And secondly, you always back your boy, right, wrong, or different. You always got his back. It doesn't matter how wrong he is, even if he gets you beat up. You can talk to him later about that, but you always got your boy's back. So I make this motion. I'm looking for Freddie, like giving him like, and uh, he doesn't, the hand don't do a lot. I can't believe this. It doesn't get second, it goes down in flames. I, you know, and I feel like the biggest idiot in the neighborhood. So I come to the meetings afterwards, and I would see four or five guys in the room. Freddie would be one of them. I would never say hi to him again. I'd say hi to the LFLs, you know. I was at work one day. One of my co-workers came up. He was sober. He came. He said, Bobby, Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to take care of some sort of business. I peeked out the window. I said, yes, it's time to take his fat ass down to City Hall. He can't do that here. A couple of weeks later, that same co-worker called me up. and said, Bobby, Freddie Wheels died last night. And he said, the reason I'm calling you is because you always spoke so highly of you. Now, as God is my judge, I cannot tell you what that motion was about. That's how petty it was. And here was a good friend of mine. But in my arrogance, I always thought that I would always have an opportunity to make amends to him. I can't even tell you what the motion was about. That's how petty it was. And the moment that my co-worker said, Bobby, wow, because you always spoke so highly of you, I thought about you big. And I've been praying for Freddie ever since. See, the key word in the ninth step is wherever possible, not whenever. Because whenever, there's time, wherever, which place. Now for me, it's never the right time because I'm too busy, easy, doesn't it? You know? The 10-step for me, number 4-9 on a regular basis. Now, if I'm going to stand up here and tell you do I do a 10-step every day, that's not true. But I'm pretty consistent four or five, six times a week. Sometimes once or twice a week. I used to say if I'm not practicing these principles, no one knows but me. That's not true either. Because when I'm not practicing these spiritual principles, I operate in nitwit mode. And should should you cross my path in nitwit mode, you too were also affected, you know. Funny story, I was driving to a large anniversary in Philadelphia uh, a, a while back, right? And some some guy pulled up next to me and beeped, and I don't know, you know, sometimes I drive, I, I kind of like suffer from Tourette Syndrome, you know. Uh, and uh, fingers fly, and F-words fly, and uh, veins, I, I really try to work on that, but sometimes I just lose it, right? So I'm at this big function and this guy comes up to me and say, you, of all the guys in the, area, I love this guy the most, Carl. He's just real serene, spiritual. He said, Bobby, he said, I saw you not that long ago. He said, I beat the wave to you.
0: And
1: then he said, with a twinkle in his eye, he said, then you waved back. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I mean, to get caught of all people, I had to get caught by him. Like, I couldn't get caught by the knucklehead, you know. So, uh, I, you know, the 11th step through prayer and meditation. So oh, I'm pretty good in that 10th step. The nice thing about it, you know, when I said in the early, when things got crazy, I would, sh- I would share my insanity. Because, you know the old saying, you can't miss what you never had. Well, I never had a peace of mind, so I never missed a damn thing. But where I'm at today, I no longer like living like that, you know. I mean, if I need to get, you know, revert back to that stuff, I could do that sometimes. But I choose not to. I don't like living like that today. You get uncomfortable, you know. But uh, I've had that spiritual awakening. they talk about the 11th step, you know. No burning bushes and lightning bolts or voices from above. And in fact, it's been a number of years since I heard any voices at all. Well. But I've had, a, I have, I've had that spiritual experience they talk about, that change of attitude, you know. And the 12th step, that's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, having had a spiritual awakening. We tried to carry this message. I'm responsible for the effort, not the outcome. And the most important part of that 12th step is to the practice these principles in all my affairs. I'm only in an AA meeting an hour and a half a day. What about the 22 and a half hours? Uh, otherwise. The time of the job or the time in my neighborhood, you know, where it's tough to do the right thing sometimes, you know. I make mistakes, you know. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I'm the poster boy of alcohol Anonymous. I invite you to come live with me for a week, see what type of guy that I am. I'm not whacking guys with bats, though. You know, I'm not doing all the other crazy stuff I used to. I make mistakes, but making mistakes is not going to get me drunk. It's not learning from those mistakes, defending those mistakes, or even justifying those mistakes which leads to the arrogance will get me drunk. I'm just a regular guy, just trying to do the right thing, you know. I got involved in service, I learned about traditions, and I love the stuff, you know. There's a whole, if, if you're new, please, there's a, you know, I never went out since I never come in, on my sobriety days, June second of 88, and that doesn't make me a great guy or anything. But, you know, my experience is, this is my experience, those who've been involved in alcohol tend to stay around, you know. I've seen guys come and go, and, you know, but, and I know a lot of us have different obligations with family, and our time may be different, but you know what, there's a I'm a firm believer that every person in this room has a gift. It may be different than the sit- person sitting next to you, but it's your gift. You need to find out what it is. Because we have a responsibility for anyone anywhere who reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to always be there, and for that I'm responsible. Some of us get involved in prisons and some of us don't. Some of us do treatment facilities, some of us don't. Some of us have kids and family obligations at home. We can't get out that much, but we can act as telephone volunteers. You know, there's a lot of different things we need to do, you know, but uh, we need to do it. I need to do it, I should say, you know, and I enjoy it, and that's what allows me to stay sober, you know. Real quickly, um, i going to finish up with this. I got to, I was training to run the marathon. I want to run the Boston Marathon, you know, and to run Boston, you, you need to qualify. They have a couple of lottery positions, but you need, usually need to qualify. So I'm training to run the, mar- uh, the Marine Corps Marathon, and uh, and I, I was a good runner at one time, and the uh, all of a sudden, like, things were out of whack. And all of a sudden, like, my shoulders hurt. It's man, this is pretty strange. But, you know, I'm sober, trying to do the right thing. So I go to the doctors, and uh, a couple of days later, he gives me a call. So Bobby, I need to see you. I wound up getting diagnosed with lung cancer. And I said, hey, this guy's out of his mind. I never smoked in my life. A little reefer, but that don't count. But I ain't never smoked a cigarette. So I went to go get a second opinion, and I got, got confirmed. And uh, I got really sick there for a while. And I went through treatment. I bounced back. Then I really got sick. They actually had to remove the lower left lobe of my lung, you know. And uh, I'm sober for a while. I think I'm going places. And I don't want really to think I handled this well because I did not. I had a very difficult time. And, well, uh, you know what? After I get out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for a number of weeks. And I got home. I couldn't make meetings anymore. And I always made meetings. I mean, 1,600 meetings a week. There's no reason not to make meetings. My favorite meetings are midnight meetings. They're either the most bizarre or the most spiritual.
0: Very little middle
1: ground. Midnight meetings are great. You know, and uh, guys show up with ray guns and capes. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know, so uh, but I couldn't make meetings. And people start coming to my house. I was very involved in the area. You know, I was uh, I was uh, the alternate delegate at the time. And uh, people who I, I, I didn't even know, like they uh, people who I met once or twice at the area assembly. But they start bringing friends with them. They start coming to my house. They carried the message out for Hawks and to my house. You're looking at a liar if you feel cheap. I saw from everyone. The only thing I gave was heartache and misery. And people I didn't even know came to my house and carried a message of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I'm I'm a firm believer that my doctors did a pretty good job, but you know what? I'm a bigger believer in the prayers of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I no longer have a problem with God because God was never the problem. You know, my mom wasn't the problem. I got to make amends to my father, you know. My mom was a sick woman. It wasn't the military, it wasn't the police department, it wasn't the neighborhood I lived in. The problem was me, Bobby Poole. I was the problem long before I picked up a drink. Believe me, I was definitely the problem when I was drinking. And when I put the drink down, I still was the problem. The steps helped me with that. The steps not only did it remove the obsession to drink. And you know what? As there's a lot of things about my past. I wish I could change in a heartbeat, but I can't. But what the steps enabled me to do and enabled me to change my attitude about my past. You know, I'm just a regular guy trying to keep on plugging. If you know, please keep coming back. Get a home group. Get a sponsor. Make sure your sponsor has done the steps. If he or she has not done the steps, they got no business sponsoring you. Get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a big difference between being involved in AA and being around AA. I don't wish you luck, because luck ain't got nothing to do with it. I wish you well, and thank you very much. So I got